and welcome to this Link Later podcast. I'm Anna Mitchell, our partners in our antitrust and foreign investment group in London, and this is the first episode in our Funds and Financial Investors podcast series, in which we'll be exploring how some key developments in the competition and foreign investment world impact on funds, private equity, and financial sponsor clients. Today, I'm with one of my London-based colleagues, Jenny Willis. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Anna. And we're joined by two of our Brussels partners, Eunice Coppenham and Anna-Maria Mangiarasina. Hi, Eunice. Hi, Anna-Maria. Hi there. They're here today to tell us about an important recent judgment handed down by the European Court of Justice in relation to the concept of parental liability for financial investors and minority shareholders the breaches of antitrust breaches by their portfolio companies. We're going to discuss on this episode what this judgment means for funds and financial sponsors in practice and what you need to keep in mind when making investments to avoid being held liable for antitrust infringements of portfolio companies. Anna-Maria, do you want to start us um, off by talking us through the facts of this case? Sure. Thanks, Anna. So let me walk you through a bit how did we get where we got to. So back in 2014, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, was fined by the European Commission for 37 million euros for because it was found to be jointly and severally liable for an infringement of competition law committed by a portfolio company, Prismian, which is an Italian maker of power cables. So the Commission found that Prismian had been involved into an industry-wide cartel uh, aimed at uh, sharing markets and allocating customers and was fined a total of 105 million euros. So what happened is that under the doctrine of parental liability, which is a well-established doctrine in European law, the bank was held liable for part of this fine, even though the regulator recognized that it played no part whatsoever in the conspiracy, and more importantly, it didn't know it existed. So it had no knowledge that um, anti-competitive conducts were taking place. Okay, so as you mentioned, parental liability is a well-established concept in antitrust law. So can you tell us a bit about what made this case different or contentious? Definitely. I mean, yes, so the parental liability concept is definitely something that is well-established under European law, and we have seen a lot of, uh, we have a lot of precedents by the European courts. So what happens is, to summarize and to remind everyone, in order to hold the parent company jointly and severally liable, the Commission really only needs to show that the parent company was able to, and did so, exercise corporate control over a subsidiary that in turn infringed uh, European competition rules. So... I think it's quite easy to see how this concept can apply in those cases that involve industrial groups, owners, where you can see a parent companies together with their subsidiary really making part and being part of the same group. However, the novelty of this case lies with the fact that the bank in question was acting through an investment arm, so a vehicle which is often used by PE houses. And the intention was very much to reduce and fully exit the investment over a short period of time, which in fact it did, and to have a minority stake only for some part of the infringement period. So I guess the question here is that the fact of the case were quite different with what you would have in a traditional industrial group scenario. And the fact that the bank exercised control um, is much of a less clearer case than what uh, you would have traditionally. Yeah. I mean, 
the concept may be well established. It does not mean that it's uncontentious. The logic is something like this. Clearly, it's a form of non-fault liability for parent companies. And it means the parent companies are held liable jointly and severally with subsidiaries because the parent and the subsidiary constitute an undertaking in European law. And they do constitute an undertaking because the ability and the actual exercise of corporate control on the part of the parent entity over the subsidiary that infringes competition law. But here, we were dealing with a fund structure that had been set up to make financial investments. And in 2004, the bank had contributed round about one third of the capital of the funds that had been set up to make private equity investments. The rest, two thirds roundabout, was sourced from third parties. And those funds, they made an investment in Prismian. They owned initially uh, all of the capital in that uh, company, but they did so only for about six or seven weeks and then started selling out and continued selling out stock through an IPO. And after the IPO, the equity interest was clearly below 50%. And then the investment was fully realized a few years later. That's a different form of investment and a different form of structure than you've seen in traditional uh, industrial groups. That's really interesting. Thanks, Jonas. So did the court then confirm that parental liability extends to financial investors in principle in this decision? Uh, yes and no. Um, the Court of Justice, they upheld the finding of the general court saying that there was parental liability in this case. Now, the general court had said that a financial sponsor behaves like a normal corporate owner rather than a financial investor if it fulfills, with respect to a portfolio company, the statutory duties uh, that fall on a large shareholder. And that includes, for instance, exercising voting rights regarding strategic decisions on business conduct of the subsidiary and also appointment of top management and approval of business and management plans and so on. So, and the general court had said that this would be evidence of exercise of decisive influence rather than a purely temporary financial investment. Okay, I see. So it sounds as though the key question really comes down to when a financial investor can be considered to exercise control or decisive influence, and even where it might have an indirect and even a minority stake. Is that what it came down to in the case? That's right, actually. Now, if the shareholder holds all or nearly all of the capital of the portfolio company, there is a presumption that it does exercise corporate control and that the commission can attribute parental liability. But with uh, a lower uh, interest, 
then that must be positively evidenced. Now, with respect to this uh, presumption, in this case, the court said that it is not uh, merely a question of uh, equity interest. It is a question of whether it de facto holds all voting rights. And that is new, and that extends the, the principle of this presumption beyond what has been the case before. So effectively, I mean, Johnny, the court has effectively blurred the, the bright line test for the presumption to apply. You know, before we were very much looking simply at capital ownership, uh, which was the, what the case law has, had always told us to look at and effectively expanded the commission powers because now we are looking at voting rights. So effectively, in practice, the judgment is going to make it harder for shareholders to determine when does the presumption apply, particularly if you think about those sponsors that tend to acquire minority stakes indirectly through fund structures. Um, and the court has clearly confirmed that the commission does not have to rely on the presumption and can simply prove um, that a holding company exercised uh, decisive influence by looking at the evidence. So I think what is also interesting to say is that the, co the court, you know, commented on some of this evidence that can be brought forward in support of this claim. And one of the elements was, was the presence in the board of board members uh, that were appointed via the parent companies. So we know that generally, you know, if you make an investment, you will want to have some of your people on the board and of whatever it is, a, a subsidiary, even if you are a minority stakeholder. The court has, made, has took, taken a quite of a broad view of what it means uh, exercising decisive influence. And, you know, while, as we have said, you would want to have some of your representative in the board, in reality, it would be enough for the regulator to find that there is some sort of personal link between the member of the board mem of the board of the infringing company with those of the parent company. And it's not going to be for the regulator to find or to have to show that the board members also held similar position in the pairing companies, which is what you would expect. You know, before what we would have expected is to say, yes, I exercise this FC influence, but I do so because those that are those uh, members that I that are sitting in the subsidiary also have a role to play in the parent company. So they are they have quite of a strong link. What the court is saying is it's enough to have that they had, um, uh, this is not necessary, you know, it's, the commission would just have to prove that they had some sort of personal link, which is a very, very light uh, standard of proof from a regulator angle. Now, in terms of identifying the type of links between a nominating shareholder and a nominated board member, this case is quite new because a number of the members of the Prismian board that had been nominated by the bank was found to not have sufficient degree of independence of the nominated shareholder. So their position on the board was in principle attributed to the nominating shareholder. And this was done notwithstanding the fact that these individuals time and time again had been confirmed to be 
independent directors for purposes of the relevant corporate law. So they were satisfying the criteria for an independent director, but they were not sufficiently independent uh, in order to not constitute links with the nominated share, nominating shareholder. And that's quite extraordinary. So it seems as though the court has taken a very broad approach um, to this interpretation of the links um, that are needed. Um, and it, it's even gone as far as saying that, you know, um, the links are, are really kind of, I would say, uh, tenuous at best, actually. Um, but can we give any more insights in particular to financial sponsors companies about uh, you know what they'll have to consider going forward, uh, bearing in in mind the approach taken in this judgment in terms of these uh, links with the board members. Yeah, well, in practice, it means that there are very tenuous links between a board member and the nominating shareholder. That could actually be enough to uh, constitute a link for these purposes, and. The judgment confirms that there's no need for the board member to be a director, a senior employee, or have a managerial position with the nominating shareholder. And it may be enough, actually, that the nominated director um, have previously advised the shareholder, for instance, as an independent lawyer or as a consultant. So bearing this in mind, financial sponsors should consider carefully who they nominate to be on boards of portfolio companies and ensure that all potential current and previous personal links are disclosed and their implications fully understood for purposes of potentially attributing parental liability. Thanks, Jonas. That does seem a really big change and a lot for financial um, sponsors to be taking into consideration when, when thinking about who might be on the board. But if we take a step back, these sort of personal links on their own um, presumably wouldn't be enough to establish decisive influence. So, um, Jonas, can you run us through what the other key risk factors um, that financial sponsors should be looking out for as well? Yes, there is a whole uh, host of, of factors that one should consider. And as the court often says, you need to look at things uh, in the round to find whether there are sufficient links to warrant um, a finding that there is the ability and actual exercise of decisive influence. Now, in this case, uh, you could think of questions such as Does the financial investor have the power to control the voting rights even if an indirect minority stake of the acquiring fund does the financial investor have the power to appoint the members of the various boards and other decision making bodies in the portfolio company does the financial investor have the power to call other shareholders to meetings and in those meetings propose the revocation of directors or indeed entire boards of directors in the portfolio company? Does the financial investor receive regular updates um, 
for instance, monthly reports on the performance and conduct of business in the portfolio entity? And is there some other evidence which suggests that the shareholder in fact acted as an industrial owner would do in similar circumstances? So these factors in, in reality, they are likely to be quite common powers for financial sponsors in various structures where they may not consider themselves to control the portfolio company um, because there is an, a minority stake or it's held through a fund structure or there may be other sizable shareholders. But it's important to bear in mind that nevertheless, these factors can um, in lead to a finding of a actual exercise of decisive influence. Thanks, Jonas. This is uh, really interesting, and I think those uh, points that you've just laid out will be helpful to uh, financial investors who are listening to this podcast. Anna Maria, are there any other key takeaways or tips that we can give to people who might be listening? Yes, Anna. I mean, I think the overarching objective of the court that's also, we understand, you know, when reading the judgment, it is that it's all about compliance. So what the courts and the regulators in Europe want to stress is that expanding the scope of parental liability is uh, in order to increase incentives also for financial sponsors to combat and to help in terms of antitrust compliance. So it's not because you're making an investment or eventually just the you know, buying a minority stake that you are going to be, you are going to be, you know, uh, exempted by ensuring that your subsidiary comply with the applicable regulatory framework. So what I would say is my takeaway is that, you know, for those financial investors listening to this, you know, you need to really take a hands-on approach when it comes to antitrust diligence, monitoring and risk control from the time you start considering that investment. Um, you know, the, being involved in compliance issues might not be the usual approach for a financial investor or financial sponsor, but in reality, you know, failure to identify and control such risk might actually entail very significant financial exposure in the forms of fine and damages, like we have seen in the present case, protracted litigation, but also more generally an impact in terms of public knowledge, because these matters are made public, so everyone knows, you know, who was the sponsor, who did, you know, at least who had been held liable. So I would definitely encourage uh, to keep antitrust compliance issues front of mind when carrying out due diligence at the outset, to definitely factor appropriate protection in the SPA or any other deal document uh, in order to cover off and to continue to think about antitrust compliance throughout your investment, even if your ultimate plan is to divest in, within a relatively short ter term of time, you really, it, it is sensible not only to seek legal advice and guidance, but really to think how once you get in, you want to get to the bottom of how the company is doing when it comes to compliance with antitrust rule. So that's in terms of takeaway. I should also mention that there are, you know, we are going to be expecting more to hear more from the courts on this area. There are two other judgments pending, which will be dealing with a similar matter in terms of parental liability. One is in relation to Deutsche Telekom. The other one is the case with Sumal. So 
it remains to be seen where the scope will be expanded further, although I must say as a practitioner, there's very little to expand further than where we got to already. Thank you. I agree. It'll be very interesting uh, to see what happens with those two additional cases. Um, this has been a really interesting discussion, so thanks very much, Jonas and Anna-Maria, for sharing your insights uh, on this with us. Um, we very much hope that you can tune in to our next podcast where we'll do a deep dive into the application of the UK's new security and investment bill to funds and financial sponsor clients. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm-hmm.